Hello everyone, Titus O'Reilly here and I am very excited to announce something today that we are launching. It's our new membership program, Bazaar Plus. If you love Sports Bazaar and you like Mick and I talking absolute nonsense and who wouldn't, this I have to say is for you. We've been working on this for ages and we've put a lot of work into it. As a member, if you sign up, you'll get all the normal episodes that you usually get as part of Sports Bazaar. You also get exclusive behind-the-scenes access. You'll get a weekly bonus podcast. That's every single week. You'll get a fortnightly newsletter, which I'll be writing. Let's not pretend Mick will. Access to a members-only chat room. And in that, you'll be able to talk to us, do all sorts of things, give feedback. You'll have the ability to vote on future episodes. So we'll put up various options and you can vote on them. You can also tell us what you want to hear, what sort of ones you want us to look into. And we'll also give our members early access to any live shows we do. And we are thinking about that and working on that in the background just quietly. So as a member, you'll go to the front of the queue uh, when we actually do that. So you can join today. It couldn't be easier. Go to our website, bazaarplus.com, or click on the link in the bio in the show notes of this podcast. And uh, we hope you all come on board. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's Sports Bizarre. I'm going to kick back and enjoy this. Some of these stories, you would say, that cannot be true. The hunt for the weirdest. It's a real rollercoaster ride, this one, isn't it? <laughs> it makes Game of Thrones look like a sitcom. <laughs> Strangest. Hang on. He's on another level. What are you doing? <laughs> a lot of our stories that start with someone fleeing moneylenders. Most unbelievable. This is a car crash. Stories to ever occur. <laughs> Stop this right now. It's just carnage. That is the densest bit of mayhem. So many <laughs> subplots in this story. In the world of sport. I think we're learning that embarrassment is not something. Sports Bizarre. A naked fan ran onto the field and slid into second base. <laughs> no, I don't drink water. I cannot stand drinking water. I am the president of everybody. I am the president of the whole FIFA. <laughs> Opened his mouth and a sparrow flew out. It's time for the leaders of the hunt. It's really simple. Get there early, get the good back. It's Titus <laughs> O'Reilly. And Mick Malloy. Welcome back, everybody, to the latest episode of Sports Bazaar. Hello, Titus O'Reilly, of course, doing all the heavy lifting, and myself, Mick Malloy. This is the second in our series of Donald Trump and the USFL. Yes. Uh, can you bring us up to speed uh, <laughs> or uh, praise it for anyone who's just dropping in now? Well, in episode one, we covered off the formation of this spring football league that was sort yeah. of an alternate to the NFL. Sure. And low budgets, but offering a serious alternative to the NFL in spring. Fall is NFL, spring is football. Posted some good numbers. Good solid ratings, good crowds. Solid characters on deck. Solid characters and players on deck. It's pretty wild the first season, but it goes really well. Yeah. So we're now entering what is always for the USFL for its history. The most entertaining is the off-season. Okay. And this off-season that we're about to do, it's the 1983 off-season, so summer in America, middle of the year in America in 1983. Before the difficult second season. Is that always like albums? You've got a recording (laughs) artist. It's always (laughs) the difficult second album or whatever. We're off to a flyer. Everything's Looking good. Yep. And the original owners had all committed to sort of restraint. Don't Keep blow your it. wages budget. Yeah. Don't get too silly. Let's go slow, softly, money. softly, and we'll make money and we'll just grow this league. Sensible approach. Sensible approach, right? So I would argue 
that what we're about to do is go through the greatest off-season in the history of sport. Oh, my God. Of what is going to go down. It well, will I'm make, frightened now. Will, if you haven't listened to the first episode, go back and listen to it because that's crazy. It was massive. But this, like the what? frog in the proverbial hot water that's being turned up, <laughs> things are just going to get sillier and sillier. Far away. Let's start small, though, me. Okay. Let's start small. So the Denver Gold, who'd been very successful, very well run, yes. lean, very, you know, had posted a slight profit, one of the few teams in year one that had actually done all right. Yeah. They were sold. They'd been ranked first for attendance, so they're doing very well. But they're purchased by a guy called Doug Spedding. Now, their general manager of the Denver Gold said, Spedding was a very bad guy. He started reading the players' mail, marking notes in the letters. It was bizarre. I actually told the team in the meeting, I've always told you the truth, and this guy will not be a blast to play for. What, is he a warden? Are they in prison? <laughs> That's What's right. happening? So the mail's getting delivered. He's opening it and reading their letters and leaving notes for them in the letters. Yeah, I, I, that's what I think you call overstepping yeah. your authority. Now, here's the least of the USFL's problems. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Secondly, the Boston Breakers, they were not doing well in Boston. They had been sold to a Louisiana real estate developer and he moved them to New Orleans, right? And okay. he thought, well, I'll go up against the New Orleans Saints because they're hopeless. Well, that's you know? kind of where the whole idea came from. He was very happy to go up against them. Now, the problem with this is moving from Boston to New Orleans, the USFL officers weren't through with this because he was relocating the franchise from America's sixth largest television market to its 50th. No. So no, not a good move. It doesn't fit their worldview. That move, though, moving from Boston to New Orleans is nothing compared to this move, which is the most amazing move probably in the history of sport. Okay. So what happens is, and there's a bit to follow here, <laughs> grab yeah. a pen and paper. All right. So what happens is it involves two teams, the Arizona Wranglers and the Chicago Blitz. Yeah. Right? So Dr. Ted Dietrich, who's the owner of the Chicago Blitz, who had been one of the better teams, had been a very good yeah. team, he's sick of travelling to Chicago because he lives near Arizona. So he's like... I'm sick of flying to Chicago to watch these games oh, yeah. all the time, right? So he tries to work out <laughs> what to do. Yeah, it's inconvenient. He would love to move Chicago, his team, to Arizona, but there's a problem. Arizona has a team, the Wranglers. Right. So he's trying to figure out what to do. The Wranglers in Arizona are owned by a guy called Jim Joseph. He lost some money in the first year. He's decided, I want out. I've right. had enough of this. So Dietrich buys the Arizona Wranglers from him. So he now owns the Arizona. Yeah, he owns the Arizona Wranglers and the Chicago Blitz, right? Right. He then sells the Chicago Blitz. This is where you need the whiteboard yes. to a fellow heart surgeon, because he's a heart surgeon in Milwaukee named James Hoffman. So Hoffman owns the Chicago Blitz now, and Dietrich has managed to own the Arizona Wranglers. Yeah. Now the Chicago Blitz were one of the best teams going around in the first season. The Arizona Wranglers, one of the worst. So sure. Dietrich has sold yeah. his Chicago team, which is the best, bought, ended bought up with the lemon, right? But as part of the deal with Hoffman, they agreed to swap assets. What right. that means is the biggest trade in sports history ever. What happens is Hoffman owns the Chicago Blitz, Dietrich now owns the Arizona Wranglers, but all the players, coaches and staff will be completely swapped. <laughs> so everyone who played for the Arizona Wranglers has to move now to Chicago yeah. and all the players in Chicago, the good team, except for the name, they all swap. He just sort of changed the names. He and... tries to change the names. He doesn't want to. So suddenly 
Dr. Ted Dietrich says, who now owns the Wranglers, I believe that this is the first time in football history that a franchise with all of its players has been transferred. <laughs> the problem with this is basically it meant because he didn't want to fly to Chicago yeah. for games, private jet, mind you, 100 players and their families had to, had to move. move. <laughs> right? Even worse, Mark Bubin, who's a defensive lineman who went from Chicago to Arizona, said, the USFL and the teams didn't contact anyone. They never told us anything. You'd think they'd make a phone call. They just found out through the media <laughs> that you were going to have to move. Yeah, now that's the, amazing. Now, the problem is Hoffman, who's now bought the Chicago Blitz, the league, because it all happens so fast and the league are desperate to have a, keep the team in Chicago. It's a big market and in they America. They want a good team. They don't do much due diligence on him. All they know is is a heart surgeon from Milwaukee and the Chicago Tribune does a profile on him that they read which says he drives race cars, raises show horses and has extensive holdings in investments in real estate, gas and oil. And it also says he'd also been a quarterback with the Denver Broncos. That was in the Blitz Media group. It's all pretty upstanding stuff. They think that all sounds no, good, no right? red flags there. No, except none of this is true. <laughs> <laughs> Jim Foster, who's the Chicago Blitz executive vice president, calls the Hall of Fame in Ohio, the NFL yes. Hall of Fame, because he knew people there and found out that Hoffman had never played for the Broncos. He said, as near as I could figure out, he went to a free op agent open triac camp, threw a few passes and said he was on the team. Hoffman had put up some of the money, but he hadn't put up $7.2 of the money he needed to put up right. to buy the team at this point. He didn't have to pay it yet, right? Bill Mesheri, the USFL's general counsel, said Hoffman showed up at the first team owners meeting a little bit drunk. The guy was way over his head. He said he was extraordinarily unpleasant. <laughs> That's not good. Hoffman suddenly realizes he doesn't have the money because he's lied or okay. the patience to run the blitz, right? He just thinks this isn't good. During the second week of preseason, yes. the blitz are playing Arizona, the team they'd swap with. They lose 21 to 20. Hoffman's walking off the field with Dan Jiggetts, an offensive lineman who'd played seven seasons with the Chicago Bears, yeah. so like a serious veteran. Hoffman says, so the owner, talking to one of his players, says, you know I'm out of here. And Jiggetts says, you're leaving town? He says, no, I'm done with this. <laughs> and Jiggetts says, what do you mean? He goes, I'm finished. Steve Erhard, who's the USFL's executive director, says he just left. Came and went like a ghost. He just ghosted the entire league. And that was it. That was it. Way so suddenly the league has to take over Chicago and now suddenly owns this Chicago. In Arizona, George Allen, who'd been the coach of the Blitz, is now suddenly the coach of the Arizona Wranglers. But that's with the same players. He yeah, same players and everything. So he's said, now, George Allen's a famous coach. He'd coached in the NFL before this. Yep. He was arguably the most competitive person that's ever lived. <laughs> Right. He would do anything to win, even if it wasn't legal. So as soon as the deal's done to move Chicago Blitz to Arizona, yes. he sends virtually everything of value at Blitz headquarters to Phoenix. He yes. grabs absolutely everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that Guts you can get Weights, training yeah. equipment, typewriters, even the mirrors in the change rooms, <laughs> right? So he sends everything. He then gets everything with a Blitz logo or even the team's name printed on it, yes. thrown into a dumpster oh. so the new Blitz can't use it. Jeez, so they are truly have to start from scratch. It's a scorched earth yeah. policy. That so is, like they've got it? all these Blitz lo like signs and T-shirts and all this and he's like, 
We're not even helping you. You've got to start from It's like Iraq setting fires to all the, <laughs> all all the wells. Yeah, yeah. Before exactly. they leave. <laughs> it's like it's terrible, baby. Really, it's a scor- is scorched earth. And it's like, but meanwhile, the Arizona Wranglers, they leave all the stuff there for them, right? So suddenly he's got all the, you know. Now, to give you an idea of what Alan's like, Alan shows up in Arizona yes. as the head coach. Now, some of the staff of Arizona have stayed. Okay. Alan sits down all of them. And this is an example of one of the interviews. Alan says, how do you think last year went? And the employee says, we sold a good number of tickets, which they had. Yeah. Alan says, you went 4 and 14. You were losers. You're fired. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good chat. So that's what he's like, right? Now, this bit that's about to happen goes down in USFL folklore as one of the most amazing moments. One morning in Phoenix... Alan is hosting his daily six o'clock breakfast briefing with the local media. Sure. Right? It's in the Phoenix Ramada Inn. And Alan is going on a lengthy diatribe about what success is and how you get success. Right? To the whole media assembled in this public cafe that they're seeing, he says, and he's eating his breakfast, he's about to have his breakfast. Everyone here plays a role in winning. From the secretaries, the equipment men, to the coaches, to the players, even to the writers. If you have one person in this chain who won't help the team win, it won't win. A waitress arrives with Alan's bowl of oatmeal and he has the same breakfast every single morning. It's a very ordered guy. Now, the way he has it is piping hot, no sugar, plenty of raisins and they have to be evenly dispersed throughout the mixture. Right? Good Lord. So this shows up while he's talking. Howard Hughes? Yeah, so this shows up while he's talking to all the media. And this time he looks at the bowl and says, "Um, ma'am, to the waitress... Where are the raisins? This is in front of the whole media. She says, I'm sorry, we're out of raisins. He looks at her and then says, this is exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean you're out of raisins? She says, I'm sorry, we're out. He says, is this your responsibility? This is in front of the whole media reporting. She says, no. There's a guy in the kitchen and, and Alan pounds his fists on the table and says, the raisin guy, that man is not doing his job and that's the point of my entire story. <laughs> it's a good point. <laughs> wow. The raisin guy. He's furious at the raisin guy and thinks this is going to contribute to the team not He's winning. He's like some kind of czar or yeah. Caesar. Or something yeah, from ancient Rome. Yep. Attack the papyrus reeds yep. now. <laughs> the raisin guy. <laughs> so that's what he's like. You can't sack him either because he has no – I bet you would if he could. The oh, raisin yeah. guy would be sacked. The raisin, if he could sack the guy at the cafe, he would. Right? That was the sort of thing. So he's now there in Arizona. So they've swapped the Chicago – so, sure. so this is making them a bit of a laughing stock with the NFL, right, who are watching yes. on going. You what, can't just – What are we doing? And also they've swapped – the worst team in the league, which was in Arizona, with one of the best teams in the league, was Chicago. Suddenly, Chicago, which is the way bigger market, has one of the worst teams it's in no the league. Goal. Like it's just it's in every way. In the foot. Years later, Dietrich, who's the doctor who did the swap, said, "In hindsight, it was a bad move." <laughs> a lot of people said it wasn't in hindsight that it was a bad yeah. move. Meanwhile, while this is all going on, after a fairly successful first season, the USFL owners all face a decision: Do they continue with the Dixon plan, which is Small salaries, starting up with 12 teams, TV revenue through cable and ABC, yep. all going very well. What's the alternative? 
Well, the Dixon plan calls for expansion from 12 to 16 teams in the second season. Yeah. Right? And this is what the TV deals are all based around and everything. Now, the USFL owners decide, could we go bigger than that? And the reason is each franchise, if you sell a license, is $6 million sales. So it's more money. More money in the owner's pocket so they go bigger faster. Now, Dixon has said there's no reason to do that. Stay with just four more teams in season two. Yeah. Slow and steady, stick to the plan. The league's owners can't help themselves. (laughs) They want the money. And so they decide to go from 12 teams to 18 teams in 1984. Uh, the Dixon plan's done. This is the first sign that really we're not sticking to Dixon who had invented this whole league's one. This puts pressure on the TV deal because it's not designed to support 18 teams. So the a- ABC say, we're not going to pay you, and ESPN say, we're not going to pay you more money just because you've got more teams. It's up to you. But they go, well, we get the license fee, so we'll do it anyway, right? Yeah. Dixon, frustrated, sells his stake. He goes, I'm out. This is not boating well. Not boating well. The new teams are the Pittsburgh Maulers, the Memphis Showboats, the <laughs> Jacksonville Bulls, the Houston Gamblers, the San Antonio Gunslingers, and the Oklahoma Outlaws. So we now have 18 teams. Yeah, we've got 18 teams. Bernard Lerner was awarded the Houston franchise. He names it the Gamblers, which ABC, the TV station, objects, who carries their broadcast. That says you can't use the name Gamblers for a sports team. There's already all this trouble with the mafia and gambling right. and sport in yeah. America, right? Instead of Lerner going, oh, fair enough, one of their big stakeholders who's paying the bills, yeah. he goes and puts it through the local media to a vote to the fans and they vote for the gamblers and he says, well, there you go. And the ABC have to back off but are not happy. Okay. The gamblers are known for a 7-Eleven promotion in which two huge dice are dropped onto the field from the roof of the Astrodome. <laughs> They've gone big with the gambler. They've team. gone big. So they're in gambling. Memphis food manufacturer Logan Young gets the Memphis showboats. He gets that license. He hires Memphis native and former college coach Pepper Rogers as head coach, right? And he signs a lease to play at the Liberty Bowl Memorial Stadium. So he's doing great things. He then discovers that because he's a trust fund baby, that most of his assets are tied up in the trust fund. He can't access them. (laughs) So he has no money. So he has to take on partners and eventually sells control to a cotton magnate named William Donovant. But he stays on as team president. Right. Now, he does some good things. He hires Reggie White, who goes on to become a Hall of Fame football player Absolutely. in Green Bay. Yeah. Packers after the USFL. The Minister of Defence, they used to call him, one of the greatest players of all time. So they do have him straight out of college. They also hire, as a football player, before he becomes this, a guy called Lex Luger, who goes on to become the total package in WWF. <laughs> now, their coach, though, that they've already hired before he finds out that he's got no money or he can't access his trust fund yet, Mm. is a guy called Pepper Rogers. He'd been at the UCLA and Georgia Tech as a coach and he was a great PR machine, great with the media, always a dialer quote. On and off the field. But he had a few, he was eccentric, insisted his assistant coaches scheduled time for naps. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. He never wore socks, ever. Once, his team loved him, but once on a team flight to New York, he wore an Air Force bomber jacket and stood at attention for the entire trip. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I like where this is going. (laughs) Yario uh, Panarada, a Memphis running back, said, I remember he came to practice in a tuxedo and football shoes. 
And he took every rep that entire week as the scout quarterback in the tucks and cleats. No one really knows why. Right? What's going on? One afternoon following a long practice, the showboat players punish Gary Shirk, a rookie tight end, who refused to bring the veterans donuts, right? It's a bit of a hazing for the rookie. Yeah, right to passage kind of deal. They taped his shoes, pants, shirt, watch, and car keys to the goalposts, right? So a bit of harmless fun, really. Rogers thought this was the funniest thing he'd ever seen. So the following week, the players grabbed Rogers and taped him to the goalpost. This is their head coach. <laughs> Bill Brother Oliver, the defensive backs coach, said, I have never been around another coach who would allow that. The managers had to go back there and let him down. <laughs> <laughs> now, Rogers also smoked marijuana, which yeah, okay. is not unique, but he did it blatantly as the head coach. Perinata once said, one time uh, I had to go ask Pepper a question, so I knocked on his hotel room door. Mm. A huge cloud of smoke comes out and he's totally naked, smoking a joint and standing there. Okay. He's out there. So this is what's happening with expansion. So they're having team moves, all this sort of stuff going. <laughs> it's not an orderly process. Yeah. Now, at this point, Donald Trump was meant to buy the New Jersey Generals. I remember. Season yes. one, remember. And decided he was out because things were going fantastically well with his casino and everything and told them no. But in 1983, Chet Simons, who's the CEO, he calls Doug Kelly, the USFL's Director of Communication, calls him into his office, hands him an index card with Donald Trump's name on it and says, do me a favour, go to the New York Public Library, because this is before the internet, and find out everything you can about this guy. I look at the name and Doug Kelly says, I'd never heard of him. So he said, I spent the entire day uh, Xeroxing articles about Donald J. Trump. When I got back, Chet asked if I was familiar with him. I shook my head. He said, yeah, he's well established in New York, but outside the city, nobody knows who he is. Trump's 36 at this point. The New Jersey Generals had gone not well in 1983. They'd had signed Herschel Walker. But apart from that, they went 6-12. and 12, And the excitement had worn off for their owner, Jay Walter Duncan. He decides to sell the team. Right. He's 66. Back on the market. He's sick of flying. He lives in Oklahoma. He's sick of it. <laughs> I don't want to fly these guys. None of these guys want to. They're all billion, you know. Yeah, like. yeah, yeah. So Donald Trump offers him $10 million to purchase the generals. What did they pay for originally? Do you remember? Yeah, about $6 million, okay. right? Duncan can't believe it. He was willing to sell for about $8 million. <laughs> <laughs> so Trump's just come in and said... Yeah, I'll take course. over. So suddenly the league has Donald Trump as the owner of the New Jersey Generals, which is really next to New York, so it's the huge yeah. market. This will prove to be the moment the USFL is doomed. <laughs> but they don't know it yet. Yeah, well, it's a moment I got super interested in this story. So to give you an idea, Donald Trump, no one knows who Donald Trump is outside right. of New York. And even then, he's just a property developer. No one knows who he is. So you've got to discount everything everyone knows about him now, right? Okay. Yeah. For good, for bad, whatever people think of him. Just he's not, he's not known. To give you an idea of what it's like when Trump takes over the general, I just want to read from Andy Warhol's diary. <laughs> The artist. Okay, the artist. This I just want to say Andy Warhol, the artist, not like it's not a football player with a similar name. It's Andy it's Warhol. Andy the Warhol. This he writes in his diary. I was a judge at the cheerleading tryouts for the New Jersey Generals, is how it starts. <laughs> what? <laughs> I love this league. 
They were having them in the basement part of Trump Tower. It was the final tryout and I was supposed to be there at 12, but I took my time and went to church and finally moseyed over there around 2 2 p.m. This is because I still hate the Trumps because they never bought the paintings I did of the Trump Tower. (laughs) This is his own diary. So I got there and they were already up to the 50th girl and there were only 20 left to go. Another guy had been filling in for me and handed me his pad and I took over. I didn't know how to score. People like Leroy Neiman were the other judges. Who's that? Leroy Neiman's another very famous painter. Right. He said he voted for anybody who could do a kick because he's a cheerleader (laughs) driver. He said, Ivana, Trump's then wife, voted for any of the girls who looked like her. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. So you've got Andy Warhol judging their cheerleader tryouts. Like, you just wouldn't believe that. You wouldn't. This is the same year Trump Tower opens. So this is where Trump's really suddenly trying to make a name for himself. Splashing Manhattan. Yeah, Manhattan. It's his first real inroad, isn't it? One of his first moves, he decides, is to get Don Shula, who's the coach of the Miami of Dolphins. Course. He's won 226 games in 21 seasons, an absolute legend. And it is would he be coaching there game. at the time? He's coaching the Miami Dolphins. Now, Shula has a hostile relationship with Joe Robbie, who's the Miami's owner, yeah. who is known as being a bit of a penny pincher, right? right. So his NFL salary was about $400,000, right? So it's not much. Trump stalks Shula. He starts calling him every Monday night before Monday Night Football and he's saying, I'll give you a five-year, $5 million contract. What? Just huge, bigger than any coach has got in football in any league. Shula and him start negotiating and eventually Shula says, I'll take it, but i got to move to New York. Will you throw in a rent-free Trump Tower apartment? Trump, because he just loves attention, doesn't lack a filter. He goes on a CBS program, NFL Today, and basically, before the deal's done, says, I've signed Shula. He's going to run the generals. It's a lock, right? He said, the only hang-up is the coaches demanding an apartment in Trump Tower and haven't agreed to that yet. He says this in the media. In the media, right. That day, the Dolphins beat the Colts. And in the post-game press conference, the third question is Shula asks him, are you heading to New Jersey? Now, Shula doesn't know Trump's gone on and done yeah, this because he's yeah. been getting ready for the game that morning. Shula is furious that his private negotiations are leaked. So yeah. Shula says next day that he's staying in Miami. So Trump. if Trump hadn't have said it, he would have had him. He'd done and dusted. Right? The generals immediately put out a statement that said, Trump felt the arrangements to attain a coach like Don Shula were just too complex and time-consuming at this point. A prime example of this was the possibility of an apartment at Trump Tower as part of a contractual agreement. Now, it's just not true. Shula's yeah. the one that said no, yeah. but it's like... Trump saying. Now, Trump at the time, if you visited Trump's office on the 26th floor of Trump Tower, you went to reception while you waited to meet him. This is if you had a meeting with him. And before you got to meet him, you had to watch an eight-minute film that chronicled his greatness. (laughs) (laughs) While you wait. While you wait. Barry Stanton, who covered the generals for the Journal News, said it was ridiculous. Part of the film was actually a sales pitch for condos at Trump Tower. And it wasn't optional. If you wanted to speak with Donald, you had to hear how amazing he was. Imagine that scene from Clockwork Orange where the guy's got his eyeballs eyeballs held open. Held open while you show the Trump video. I think we should do this, Mick. Absolutely. If anyone wants to meet from us from now on, they have to listen to a podcast. (laughs) The the, the Sports Bazaar eight-minute presenter. (laughs) At the time... 
playing for New York Giants in the NFL is yes. a guy called Lawrence Taylor, who is arguably the greatest defensive player of all time, all right. right? But he's at the peak of his – he's 24. He's at the absolute peak of his powers yeah. at this point, right? And goes on to have a Hall of Fame career, revolutionizes defensive play. Sure. Brutal player. Like some of the – if you Google Lawrence Taylor yeah. on YouTube well, – I will. You'll see the tackles and he's literally almost – like it's he literally almost kills guys. Like yeah. it's – it's no bigger name in New York. Trump decides he wants him. He offers him a $1 million signing bonus. He's in the middle of about a four-year contract with the Giants, but he yeah. says, when you finish at the Giants, well, you sign with me. Now, Lawrence Taylor is from a very poor family and he couldn't believe it. Trump says, I'll give you a $1 million sign-on bonus immediately. And he says, call your bank. And so Taylor calls his bank and there's a $1 million sitting Shit. in the bank account. And he says, oh, Thanks, Don. And he says, I appreciate he put his money where his mouth is. Trump says, I assure you, Lawrence, no word will leak of his <laughs> signing. Yes. Right? Now, the minute <laughs> he got off the phone to Taylor, Trump's publicist, John Barron, calls all the New York newspapers and supplies them with the news that Lawrence Taylor <laughs> has just signed a $1 million signing bonus to go to the New Jersey yeah. Generals when his New York Giants contract finishes. John Barron, yeah. Trump's publicist, all the reporters know that John Barron is actually Donald Trump disguising his voice. <laughs> <laughs> that he just invented a publicist. No. Yeah. So he would claim it was John, John Barron, Barron calling on, on behalf of Donald Trump, but it was actually Donald Trump and he would be pretending to disguise his voice, but he's got such a distinctive voice that they all knew no, it was, it was Donald Trump. Hi, this is John Barron. I've got Donald Trump on the line for you, yeah. putting you through. Hi, I'm <laughs> Donald Trump. <laughs> so um, Why? For what end? Because one, I think you would like be able to say, well, you know, it wasn't him. Like he was imported and had a publicist. But he didn't have a publicist. He didn't do it. Just do it himself. He would ring up and feed say the it's press John Barron directly. here. I'm a publicist for Donald Trump. And Donald Trump wanted you to know that we've just signed Donald. Lawrence Taylor, all this. This fills America's sports pages because Lawrence Taylor is about the biggest star yeah. almost in the game at the time. And so Donald Trump, who barely anyone has heard of, is suddenly in every sporting newspaper. As Which pulling is, off this huge coup. And this is his motivation here, right? Yeah, yeah. He's all to build his brand and be in the papers is all Donald Trump wants, right, at this point. Now, what happens is both Trump and Taylor and everyone involved knows this is just a pure publicity scam. Taylor had no real plans of ever going to the generals. In it, he actually had an opt-out clause that he could exercise at any time. Right. So what he does is the Giants come back realizing they're going to lose him. They offer him a $6.55 million offer, yeah. extend his contract, pump up his salary massively. So win for him. He exercises his opt-out clause in the USFL contract and yeah. pays back the $1 million to Trump. And Trump's and And $10,000 interest. And Trump's yeah. in every paper. Trump even goes further and says, I knew this was going to happen and because I'm such a great New York citizen. I never wanted Lawrence Taylor to leave the Giants. Makes out like he's somehow magnanimous in it, right? Yeah, it's still his decision. Now, Trump, though, despite he can't get Lawrence Taylor, he starts spending, spending, spending. Now, remember, the whole purpose of the league is you don't spend. It's a cheap league. Let's keep our let's keep our salary cap down. Let's not get let's not get a spending war because a USFL license costs six million. The license is being sold for the NFL at the time in the mid eighties. They're going for like 
70 million, 90 yeah. million, like a lot more, right? So if it gets into a spending war with the NFL, the yeah. NFL can win. They can win, yeah. Right? And they also don't have enough money coming in yeah. to spend these things. Trump says, stuff that, I'm spending, spending, spending. <laughs> so he starts recruiting players all the time. He's already got Herschel Walker, right, the Heisman Trophy winner from the year yeah. before. He didn't get him. It was already at the team when sure. he bought it. So he goes out and gets a guy called Doug Flutie, who's seen as the he's a Heisman Trophy winner and seen as going to be a great yep. uh, quarterback. He signs him to a five-year, $7 million contract, which is the largest in pro football at the time. Sure. So he's spending more than the NFL ever spends. He starts spending and spending and spending all the time. Mark Gastineau, who's the New York Jets um, defensive end at the time, he's summoned to a meeting with his agent to meet Trump. Says the first thing we had to do was sit through that stupid promotional video about all these achievements. <laughs> <laughs> They're all offered a huge amount of money. Do you only have to watch it once? Yeah, like I think, if you go well, back for another meeting, you don't have to I watch it. I think you have again. to watch it every time. Right. Does he update it? Like with the promotional one now, I have about it his doesn't deal. Say. A- I imagine it's, I'm sure he spends a lot of time editing this video. I'm sure it does. Incredible. Suddenly, with Donald Trump in the league, He's already pushed the New York Giants up on playing what they pay Lawrence Taylor. He not only pushes up the salary spend in the USFL, he pushes up in the NFL. Right. So single-handedly, you can chart this, and people have done this, Trump massively creates off a massive amount of inflation for everyone involved in football. Players love it, right? They're like, this is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he pays way over the odds. Suddenly okay. the USFL, David Dixon's gone. The Dixon plan expansion has been He's sort of riding the on the wall. Trump is spending like crazy and the other owners are starting to go, we better start spending. And so suddenly the out of control. The whole plan of what was successfully working with the USFL is almost gone. Dixon's created a monster. Yeah. The owners of the Los Angeles Express, Bill Daniels and Alan Harmon, they are very smart guys. They are cable TV magnets. Yep. Made a lot of money in business. They had got in, for instance, television star Lee Majors to become a part owner. Six million dollar man. Six million dollar man. He's an owner of the Los Angeles Express. Trump offered him ten million dollars. <laughs> I can make you the seven million dollar man. I can make you <laughs> six is nothing. Yeah. Now they look at all this spending mm. that Trump has kicked off and everyone's suddenly doing, and they go, We're not comfortable with this. This is not what we signed on for. Yeah. We're not gonna do it because if we do it, we'll go, we know you'll go broke. Yeah, all yeah, of us yeah. will. They're going to put the Los Angeles Express up for sale. Right. So suddenly you're getting the existing owners of the league sell out. Cold feet. Well, they realize that either they're not making enough money or they, this is not the plan I signed yeah. up to. These were the guys that were committed to the yeah. original plan. But it was always a gentleman's agreement to stick to the plan and so sure. now it's sort of going. So they put it up. They find a buyer in a mortgage banker named J. William Oldenburg. He buys the team for $7.5 million, which they – are thrilled with, right? Yep. They make a profit of two million, those guys. Done. And no right. harm, no foul. We yeah. bought it, we added it for a year, we made two yeah. million dollars, we left, right? And they think it's going nowhere. Um, in the lead up to the purchase of the Express, Chet Simmons, uh, who's the CEO of the league, and Steve Erhart, who's one of his offsiders, they call Oldenburg and say, Come to New York for a sit down, want to meet you, want to go over everything before you take over the team, yes. blah, blah, blah. He responds, why? So a bunch of guys can investigate my cock? <laughs> so he's just like completely unnecessarily hostile on day one. So this is the new owner of the Los Angeles yeah, Express, okay. right? It's an outrageous. 
<laughs> first gambler, yeah. right? So he's just, they like, come meet you. We'll talk about everything. They go, well, we want to meet with you about, do you have the money to buy this and all that? So Oldenburg doesn't go visit them, but he gets his accountant's firm to send him a thing. dick <laughs> <laughs> He says, they'll send you what my net worth is. They send a like legal sure. document saying it's $100 million he's got, he's worth. Yep. So they go, okay. You're in. You're in. Now, Oldenburg's been in business since he arrives in Seattle first in 1959 from Syracuse, New York. He'd been raised by a very working class family. His older brother said he was always hustling to make money. He had worked as a trumpet player <laughs> and door-to-door vacuum cleaner salesman while in high school. Okay. He would sell anything, his brother said, his toys, anything. He just was a born wanting to make that. money. Oldenburg's firm was Investment Mortgage International. So it did all these mortgage banking deals. It was based on the top floor of San Francisco Transamerica Pyramid Building. He had his own penthouse suite in the office. Sure. At the gala opening of his new offices, Wayne Newton, the famous Las Vegas singer, sang The Impossible Dream backed by a 34-piece orchestra. Was he on the trumpet? (laughs) (laughs) I bet he was. Mr. Oldenburg then talked of the importance of his firm in American real estate finance. And as he spoke, mist rose from blocks of dry ice behind him on the stage. Oh, he's a bit of theatre. Bit of theatre. I love it. His office suite had a jacuzzi, artworks, and voice activated doors. (laughs) This is in the 80s. Well, we're doing the jacuzzi. Yeah. And someone's at the door. (laughs) What else are you going to do? He thought this through. So. He's a totally out there. This is 80s high excess, you know, jacuzzi. Yeah, and, the I mean, imagine holding a meeting in a jacuzzi. Right? <laughs> Terrible for taking notes. Imagine it. <laughs> so Oldenburg has got an ego that matches Trump's. And he's right? LA. He's LA, Trump's New Trump's York. New York oh, right? gonna... Oldenburg is, does not want to be outdone. He, he's interviewed by Sports Illustrated after his purchase of the Los Angeles Express. He said, I'm used to winning, to nothing less than becoming the best. Donald Trump can get all the press he wants, but when it comes to business, he can't carry my socks. <laughs> so suddenly the USFL Ooh. that had 12 very sensible, yeah. calm, easy, like relatively Just good owners. Keep the ball in the air. We're all yeah. going well. Has a guy going through people's mail, Donald yeah. Trump in New York, and has Oldenburg in LA. And, has a guy swapping teams from Chicago to Arizona. Like it's, it's, it's two idiots in a swinging dick competition. Yeah. They haven't even got to the second season, remember. <laughs> Oldenburg's first over of business was to hire a guy called Don Klosterman, who'd worked for the Los Angeles Rams and is one of the American football's great executive and he gets him by giving him two words open checkbook you can spend whatever you want on this team there is no limit on your budget which team is this the the los angeles express right oldenburg says to build up the los angeles express spend what you want klosterman's like i can't believe it klosterman's nickname was the duke of dining out what, Sir Lunchalot was yeah. taken? He had built up 19, this 1979 Rams into a Super Bowl qualifier. He had a reputation of being fantastic. The Rams fired him in 1982 and he was so not happy, he just wanted to do them over. And the idea of doing it in their same city right. was just so he had open check for them. His second order of business for Oldenburg was, he said to Klosterman, just go out and get any superstars. I see what Trump's doing. I want to destroy Trump. Yeah. So cost didn't matter at all. So that's exactly what they did. They just went out and got soon. The New Jersey General's payroll was $5 million. By the time Oldenburg's finished, the Blitz's payroll is $13.1 million. 
So he doesn't just double it, right? Of the new signees, one of their kickers, Tony Zendayas, he recalls being stunned at the number of luxury cars in the players' parking lot. Right. Like, they spent $8 million just on their offensive line, getting the best college footballers' top blockers yep. who blocked for the quarterback. This is an example of negotiation. So Mark Adikis, he's been courted by Oldenburg. He's at dinner with Oldenburg, his agent. Yep. Um, his agent's Perry Deering. Oldenburg turns to Klosterman, who's the general manager, and says, I like this kid. Give him anything he wants. <laughs> Klosterman says, well, what do you want? Deering, his agent, removes a pen from his pocket and writes a figure on a napkin. $700,000. He gets it straight away at dinner. Adeki says, my nickname was Limo because they drove me right out on the practice field in one. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it. That'll do it. So Oldenburg... Though, let's get a bit to the man and what he was like. He didn't really ever go to team headquarters often. Yes. Right? But when he did, those who met him recall him as volatile, erratic, simple, and clinically insane. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> he was five foot six in shoes, thick brown eyebrows, and an almost sinister smile, they refer him as. He referred to himself mm. as Mr. Dynamite. Oh, dear, oh, dear. <laughs> Wow. Paul Sandrock, who was the express treasurer, said he came off as a hustler. He tried to play with the big boys, but he wasn't one of them. Jerry Sklar, the general manager of the Birmingham Stallion, said he was an absolute idiot. He didn't have <laughs> the slightest idea what he was doing. Fantastic. So the other owners don't meet Oldenburg at first. He's a bit of a mystery. But on the night of the January 17th, 1984, he arrives in New Orleans for the first ever owners meeting that he attends. Joe uh, Canazaro is the owner of the New Orleans Breakers. He hosts a dinner with his peers of all the owners. Oldenburg's the only one that shows up with an entourage, which includes Wayne Newton. <laughs> right? Hopefully you've got to bust out a couple of tubes. Yeah, exactly. Entrees arrive and alcohol's flowing. Oldenburg suddenly goes nuts. At one point, he stands up, rips open his silk button-down shirt, pulls down his pants... And pointing to Wayne Newton, promises his team would open to a pre-game concert, a win, and a sellout crowd. He then bellowed that the Express would beat the shit out of everyone in the USFL. He said, I believe that you do not save souls in an empty church if you want to boogie-woogie with the king of rock and roll. <laughs> oh, wow. You can't make this up. He said, I believe, he's yelling at this point, I believe you do not say souls in an empty church. If you want to boogie-woogie with the king of rock and roll, you better get some dancers. What can I say, said Fred Bullard, the Jacksonville Bulls owner. He was unstable. <laughs> God, and he's still, he's half naked at this point. He's half naked at the thing. Now, the most amazing thing he does before the season starts and what probably becomes the defining thing of this spending on players Yes. And we talked about this contract. Remember when we did the weirdest contract clauses? Yes, I do. We talked about Steve Young. He goes on to win a Super Bowl Bowl with the San Francisco Francisco, 49ers and uh, one of the great quarterbacks of all time. Yeah. But before that, Steve Young is playing at Brigham Young University. He's a Mormon. Okay. And his family's got deep ties to Utah and and, and the Mormon religion and everything. But he's the best player pretty much in the league. He was going to go number one in the draft, which meant if he went in NFL, which meant he would have played in Cincinnati. He doesn't want to play in Cincinnati. Yes. And LA is much closer to Utah and everything. So Klosterman and Oldenburg, they say to Steve Young, we want to sign you. We're desperate. 
So they offer him the most insane contract in the history of sports, even to this day, yes. I reckon, right? Lee Steinberg, who's Young's agent, negotiates a 10-year deal worth over US $40 million. This is back in 1983. Wow. Now, the way it was going to be done is the payment was going to be in the form of an annuity set up to pay $1 million annually for the next 42 years. Yep. So that's how the money was going to come in, right? But the negotiations are interesting. Both parties were at Oldenburg's office to go over the contract. Yeah. They've agreed on the broad terms, but mm. you know. And you know what it's like doing a detailed contract. The lawyers get together yeah. in a room. Thrash it out. It's, it's it takes forever. Right? Yeah, even yeah. if the broad agreement, if both sides agreed on everything. Yeah. And, and generally, if you're not a lawyer, you're in another room or you go and do other stuff knowing it's going to take it. forever, right? Yeah. They'll call I just want to go out and side and play with the other kids. Yeah, exactly. So Oldenburg is in his office and they're downstairs in the contract room. Now, Oldenburg staff haven't told their boss that despite Young agreeing to come to the Express on the vague terms, that to actually write the contract up is going to take all night, Yeah. right? The contract's been done, but there's a lot of hammering yeah, off to yeah, go yeah, off, yeah. right? Oldenburg doesn't get this. So he's upstairs in his office and they're all downstairs. Steve Young's off in a conference room. He's studying for a microeconomics exam, so he's not in with the lawyers. Yeah. It's taking its time, which is, but it's totally normal. But Oldenburg's got no patience and it's his birthday. So he had people waiting at a birthday dinner. So he thinks it's going to take like an hour and then he'll sign it and then go celebrate his birthday no. with everyone and celebrate the yeah. deal being done. At 6 p.m., Oldenburg storms into the room with the lawyers and screamed, why isn't this kid signing the effing contract? What are you guys doing? What's the hang up? One of the attorneys said, well, we're talking through the guaranteed language. To which Oldenburg shouted, guarantees, here's all the effing guarantee you need. He opens his wallet, stuffed with $100 bills, and threw the money at the lawyer and storms out. Okay. Stein, He's my new favourite character. Steinberg, who is Steve Young's agent, says, did you explain to him that this is complicated? And they said, well, not really. Yeah. And Steinberg says, this is going to be an interesting night, which proves to be true. <laughs> Another hour passes and Oldenburg returns to the room just as Steinberg's wrapping up a phone call with Legrand Young, who's Steve's dad. Yeah. And Oldenburg yells, who are you on the phone with? <laughs> and Steinberg says, Legrand Young, Steve's father. And Steinberg says, will you tell him to shove the Mormon temple up his ass?" <laughs> Seems like a fair response. Yeah. So the attorneys He's are... lashing out, this guy. Oh, yeah. The attorneys are intimidated. They know that... He's got a reputation for firing people on a whim. So, yeah. so they're not telling him that long. It's 11 o'clock at night now. Oldenburg's back. This time he's intoxicated. His eyes are red. His speech is completely slurred. He says, if you don't get this done in the next effing hour, the deal is off the table and slams the door. They're all like, hey, this is getting exhausting. They keep talking. Steinberg starts pleading with the attorneys, send him out for dinner. Tell him we won't sign anything without him. Just get him out yeah. of the building. It's 3 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> Over of intercom comes Oldenburg's voice. Get Steve and Lee in my office right now. Steve Young and his manager goes up to the office. And they say the veins are bulging from his neck. He's red in the face. He's furious. He said, I've offered you the most money any athlete in history has gotten and you won't take it. You may not be good enough to play for my team. He's jabbing Young in the chest. Now, Young is like a yeah. quarter, a huge guy, yeah, like, you know. He calls him an effing Mormon. Now, Young apparently is one of the nicest guys ever, Yeah. right? And he's very humble and polite and stuff. But that moment he snaps. He says, Mr. Oldenburg, with all due respect, if you do that again, I'm going to belt you. 
Evelyn Ward. Alderberg's speechless for a second. He says, you're snubbing me. You're turning this money down. Yang shakes his head and says, I'm not doing anything. I'm studying. I don't know what's happening. I'm not in the meeting with the law. Just like you, I'm leaving it to the agent and the lawyers. Oldenburg has this long glass bar in the office. So he starts smashing everything <laughs> on the bar. There's broken glass going everywhere. He then picks up a chair, runs towards one of the windows, and they're on the 30th floor <laughs> and starts trying to break the window. So Steve Young grabs him to stop him breaking the window going yeah. out from the 30th floor. Oldenburg's swearing and starts going, security, you guys are no effing good. Security, security. So Young and Steinberg are escorted out onto the street at four in the morning. Oh, wow. Word of the meltdown leaks somehow and the phone doesn't stop ringing. Pete Rosell, the head of the NFL, rings Young and says, wait for us, don't sign with the USFL. Yeah. Finally, early the next evening, Bill Odenberg calls. He'd sobered up and he says, are you guys an apology? There's no excuse for my behavior last night. I want you on the express. We all do. They debate what to do. Young's asking everyone you can think of. Finally, his dad rings and he says, what should I do, Dad? And dad says, accept the offer. And he does. The events of the night before have made them a bit nervous. Yes. And this is the cleverest thing that they ever do. Young and his advisors go and they make sure that the contract that they've just signed, which you've got to remember, you know, it's a million dollars every year For over 40, the next 40 years. Yeah. They make sure it's insured. So even if Oldenburg, the Los Angeles Express, or the USFL go bankrupt at any point in time, I continue to be paid. They get paid, right? That means that because of this, even though Steve Young eventually does go play NFL, he will continue to get paid until 2027 yeah. when he will receive the final check for nearly $3.2 million. He took his last USFL snap in 1985 and his last NFL snap in 1999 but he will still get paid as a professional Brilliant. quarterback until the year 2027 when he's 65 years old. Brilliant. It's got to be the greatest deal in the history of sport. Oh, it, absolutely. He's still being paid today. Still being paid today. Who would ensure that? I know. Did this is the amazing thing. Yeah, due, due diligence. We've got Oldenburg, we've got Trump, we've got all these new owners. The second season hasn't even started. And at this point, Trump's real motive starts to come clear. Because no. at the moment, he seems to have bought into the USFL. Yeah. On October 18, 1983, Trump attends his first owners meeting in Houston. He suggests to the USFL owners that they should move to fall or autumn or fall, as they call it in America, where the money is and the fans are. What he's saying is we should go directly up against the NFL. Head to head. Play yeah. at the same time. All the owners just go, that's totally not what we're about at, yeah. at all. Never occurred Insane to idea. Why would you even say this up? January 17, 1984, he attends his second owner's meeting and calls for a vote on the move to fall. Yes. They're all going, what the hell? Now, to give you an idea of how he is perceived and how he acts in these owner's meeting, Edward J. Bartolo Sr., who's in construction, he owns the National Hockey League's Pittsburgh Penguins at the time, and he's bought his son, Edward Jr., the Super Bowl champion, San Francisco 49ers, and that family still owns the San Francisco wow. 49ers. He's in construction. One of the richest men in the league. He owns the Pittsburgh Maulers, right? He is a smart guy, but he often doesn't have time because he's got so much going on. He's in the Forbes top 400 yeah. richest people in America, all this sort of stuff. He often sends his general manager to league meetings. Uh, this is a 35-year-old guy called George Heddleston who had spent the past four years as public relations director at the 49ers. Before that, had worked at the Dallas Cowboys. So, knows football, smart yeah, young guy, right? Pedigree. Working for a guy who's a serious heavyweight of American business. Yeah. 
Hedelson says three decades after this meeting, he still remembers his first encounter with Donald Trump at this <laughs> owner's meeting. He says, Mr. DeBartolo stayed in Youngstown, Ohio for work. So I was there representing the Maulers. It was craziness. You had the owner of the Michigan Panthers, Alfred Taldman, and the owner of the Philadelphia Stars, Miles Tannerbaum, screaming at each other in Yiddish over some matter of unimportance. <laughs> and then Donald Trump walks in and he's bombastic from the start. He's loud. He clearly wants to be noticed. Just a jerk and a jerk on purpose. <laughs> He sits down and the meeting starts and he's reading the New York Times. We're meeting, voting on things and he's reading the newspaper. Finally, we get ready to hold a vote and Donald holds open the New York Times, stands to get attention, talks over whoever's speaking and says, look at this, look at this. I built a skyscraper and nobody cares. I signed some obscure defensive back and I get three paragraphs in the Times. That's why I bought generals. <laughs> Later that day, <laughs> the gathering broke off into an executive session and Trump continues. I don't know about the rest of you people and I don't know how much money you guys have, but I have the money to get into the NFL, he said, and that's where I plan on being. Right. So he's saying, I'm just bought a USFL team, but I want to be in the NFL. Jesus. And I have more money than anyone in this room except for maybe that guy right there. And he points at Hedleston, who is 40 years younger than Di Bartolo and has no physical similarities. Yeah. So Trump thinks he's not who he is. <laughs> Edelson says, I just froze. Here's this loudmouth guy, this outrageous guy pointing at me. And looking back, I believe he started single-handedly to take the league down that day. Yeah. Nobody in that room wanted to move the USFL to fall. Nobody, not one person. But there was something about Donald Trump. The oh. owners sidestep a vote on moving to fall by appointing a long-range planning committee to study the idea. Yeah. Now, at this point, there's enough of the original owners around to sort of temper Trump's push right. to get into fall there. So they, Surely he doesn't have the numbers. He doesn't have, he doesn't have the numbers, but he keeps talking about moving it to fall, right? And they're all like, why would you do that? Now, one guy who sees Trump for what he is immediately is a guy, John F. Bassett. Now, he's the owner of the Tampa Bay Bandits, who we covered in the first episode. I love the Tampa Bay Bandits. Smart guy, Burt Reynolds, Burt Reynolds owns is, the team with this him. This is your team, is it? Yeah, I love this team. He had owned a team in the WFL, which is a team that had gone under earlier. He wasn't the wealthiest man, but he knew what worked and what didn't. He was the smartest guy in the room by a mile, right? Mm. He believed in the Dixon plan, slow, steady pace, build slowly, going well. He knew Trump wasn't. One guy who was the USFL executive director, Bill Masheri, told the Washington Post, my overall observation was that Trump was kind of like a self-appointed saviour of the league. Mm. That self-appointment was accepted by many of the owners, but not all of them. Maybe the only one that didn't was John Bassett. John Bassett was the smartest guy in the room and Trump always thought he was the smartest guy in the room. So you can imagine how well that went with anybody. Bassett gets furious after this owner's meeting because on April 15, 1984, the New York Times ran a piece headlined, USFL envisions fall schedule beginning in 1987. Hmm. Nothing has been agreed on right. or voted or anything. This is just all Donald Trump. The article featured insights from two prominent USFL executives and included the quote, it was an executive decision made by the people who control the league. It is the only logical way for the league to continue. There's virtually no chance that it's not going to happen. Bassett knows Donald Trump has leaked, has this, leaked this through his publicist. <laughs> and he knows that this is just complete nonsense. Wow. He gets asked publicly about it by the Sporting News. And Bassett doesn't hold back. He says, the New York Times is supposed to be the most respected newspaper in the world. And all they do is listen to Donald Trump who has duped them says this publicly. 
The story is absolute nonsense. I hate to see the times used by a con man. It upsets the hell out of me. Donald Trump is trying to manage the news and browbeat the rest of the owners in this league. In the end, his philosophical view may be correct, but his tactics stink. At this point, there is absolutely no basis to the story whatsoever. Mm. And Bassett's furious that Trump's trying yes. to make the move to autumn. Yeah. Shortly after the Times piece, Donald Trump meets with the NFL commissioner, Pete Rozelle, at New York's Pierre Hotel, and he wants to discuss a possible merger or absorption of the USFL or some of the teams into the NFL. The owners don't know about this till years later. What we do know, and it's contested what happened in this meeting, Trump and Rozelle meet. Trump hired the hotel room, set it all up. He asked what he could do to end up in the NFL. Trump said to Roselle that the USFL was unimportant to him. Mm. And Trump explained to Roselle that the other USFL owners didn't matter to him at all. <laughs> Pete walks into the meeting, the hotel room. Donald starts talking before Pete can even say hello. Yes. Says, I'll be great in the NFL. You've got to have me. Um, he's going on and on and on. The conclusion of the meeting, Roselle looks at Trump and says, Mr. Trump, as long as I or my heirs are involved in the NFL, you will never be a franchise owner in this league. <laughs> Trump's gifted with the ability to hear sort of any and yeah. ignore information yeah. he doesn't want to hear. He remains undeterred and determined yes. to force himself into the NFL, which is what sets them up. Incredible. His only obstacle, as we finish before we get into the next season, is, of course, John Bassett, the owner of the Tampa Bay Bayonets. I want to read you a letter that on August 16, 1984, you can see there's the actual letter. Yeah, you can is. see this yes. online on the letterhead of Tampa Bay Bandits football. It's addressed to Mr. Donald J. Trump, the Trump Organization, 725th Avenue, New York. Dear Donald, on a number of occasions over the past meetings, this is from a book called Football for a Buck, which is by Jeff Perlman, who is a yep. fantastic sports writer and who, um, if you like this story, you should read his book. On a number of occasions over the past meetings, I have listened with astonishment at your personal abuse of the commissioner and various of your partners if they did not happen to espouse one of your causes or agree with one of your arguments. It is obvious from the record that you are a talented and successful young man. It is also a fact that I regard you as a friend and an owner who has made a contribution to the league in general and been a saviour to the New Jersey area in particular. While others may be able to let your insensitive and denigrating comments pass, I no longer will. You are bigger, younger and stronger than I, which means I'll have no regrets whatsoever punching you right in the mouth the next time an instance occurs where you personally scorn me or anyone else who does not happen to salute and dance to your tune. I really hope you don't know that you are doing it, but you are not only damaging yourself with your associates, but alienating them as well. Think before you shoot, and when you do fire, stick to the message without killing the messages. Kindest personal regards, John F. Bassett. Wow. Fantastic. That is the end of the off-season. I promised it was, was going to be one there. of the wildest off-seasons. When it's we come back I mean. next week, we're going to start with the 1984 season. The second season. The second. And can I just say, if you thought that episode was crazy, I think the next one is even more crazy. I cannot wait. Once again, you have delivered. Titus O'Reilly, thank you, sir. So thankful for you all listening. If you're interested, we do have a membership program. That gets you a bonus podcast every week and a whole bunch of other goodies. If you are interested in that, click on the link in the show notes or go to bizarreplus.com to join Bizarre Plus, our membership program.